it's your theology that helps you get through tough times because when tough times come you have to think about the goodness of God theological term theodicy when evil when, when, when wrong happens to quote unquote good people where is God the scripture clearly tells us that God is there he is in the midst so when I think about my life when you think about your life our praise comes not from the absence of trials you, you get what I'm saying like we don't praise him just because it didn't happen to us we praise him because he's worthy of praise because of who he is so then I understand that even when I go through I can praise him when I'm not going through and I praise him when I am going through because I praise him all the time for who he is and not what he does because if I'm praising just because of what he does the God ain't nothing but a, a genie up in the sky for me but when he's your all in all you praise him because you know he's been faithful in spite of tender mercy and how he's kept you even this past week uh, I don't know if you knew you didn't keep yourself this week if you tried to keep yourself you would have went crazy already but God kept you and he allowed you to be here today so we can collectively give him glory and honor and praise I'd like to take a moment just to reiterate our announcement at the beginning of worship service this Last two weeks, we've been taking time to discuss a sensitive topic, talking about sex, and want to be mindful that some parents may feel their children aren't ready, so we want to give them the option to step out into um, our, fel our fellowship hall where there is a, a Bible teaching there. Uh, they would also have some snacks and some free time, so I want to make that option available. But uh, indeed, we, we, we live in a times where... Uh, the topic and discussion of, uh, of sex is, is, is hitting younger ears. So it's not just something that you wait on until they are good into their teenage years, but this is something that we need to uh, speak with our children in age-appropriate ways. Uh, and I pray that the Lord will be honored in what we discuss here this morning. So I want to make sure we uh, knew that. Um, and even though much will be said uh, between last week and this week, but still, uh, there's so much more that we could talk about uh, in regards to sexual intimacy. Uh, but however, for the sake of time and uh, knowing that there's other things we, we really want to get to, uh, we're going to press on. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, we are in the New Testament. 
1 Thessalonians, this epistle, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And Paul is encouraging them and saying, you've been doing a great job. Keep up the good work. But we know that even though we may be doing a good job, there's always room for improvement. We never arrive. There's never a point where we can say, oh, Lord, I got this walk down. Because the text tells us that pride comes before a fall. So if you think you're just super Christian, you got it together, be careful because you might just be about to fall. But when we are desperately dependent upon Jesus each and every day, he, he, he grows us and transforms us. And we'll see in this text through that process called sanctification. So if you would, please stand with me. Stand with me and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that, you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. We are continuing on with part two of what does God want from my sex life. Let's go to our Lord in prayer this morning. Gracious and eternal Father, we do come to you desperate because we are broken. We are weary and we are weak. We are in desperate need of you to show up, to fill us with your Holy Spirit. To give, us a, to give us a heart and a desire for worship, dear God. This week has been long and we're tired. The issues of life surround us. There's always something going on. But Lord, in the midst, remind us that you are a good God. You are a faithful God who will not leave us nor forsake us. But you have declared in your word that when we are weak, your grace is sufficient. So Father, I ask that you supply us with abounding grace and mercy this morning as we look into your word. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May your word fall upon hearts receptive and teachable. Lord, use me in my brokenness to speak the illustrious truths of Christ. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, we do lift up those who are suffering in various situations and circumstances, Lord. Whether it be from natural disaster or 
self-afflicted disaster, but Lord, we need you now. Lord, we need you as a church to grow us, to mold us, to shape us, to look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. Father, for the one who was struggling this morning with sexual sin, Lord, I ask that the yoke and bondage of sin would be broken in the name of Jesus right now. Ask, Lord, that you would deliver us from evil, that no, we would no longer fall or, or fail to stumble in sexual sin that keeps us from experiencing intimate relationship and joy with you, Lord. May we not continue to settle for less, but may we look for more from Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask that you indeed would have mercy, have your way in this place. In Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen. You know, Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 1 through 2, has been on my heart and mind lately. And it reads, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what I want you to know and recognize that the author of Hebrews is telling us that God is speaking to us today. And as we enter into this, this study of this text, God is speaking to us. And God has already spoke to us through his word. God speaks to us through his life. When I think about today's uh, sermon, I, I think back to John the 8th chapter where uh, the Pharisees has caught a woman in adultery. And they, and they snatch up this woman and they bring this woman before Jesus. They want to test Jesus. They want to see if Jesus will condemn her according to their, their law. What is Jesus going to do? And they, they, they throw this woman down before Jesus and say, Jesus, what do we do with her? She's caught in adultery. You know the law said we should stone her. We should kill her right now. Jesus just kind of sitting there doing this thing. And they say, Jesus, don't you hear us? This woman is caught in adultery. She is a sinner. We should stone her right now. And Jesus, and, as, and they go and they pick up stones. And Jesus says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And Jesus is setting the context for his conversation with her. And, and as she is bowed down to the ground, lo, uh, all her accusers go away. And Jesus says, hey, look up. Where are those who accuse you? But they are gone. But what does Jesus say to her? Jesus says, go and sin no more. So Jesus is speaking to us even through that story. And he, he, he's showing us the, the, the posture and the compassion that he has. His, his, his glorious goodness and mercy that he is pouring out. That on one side you have the, uh, the Pharisees who are who are coming and accusing and ready to throw stones at this woman. But then we find this woman at the feet of Jesus, where she finds mercy and compassion. So what Jesus is showing us is something that we want to be mindful of today. Well, don't look to take the life of those caught in sexual immorality. It's easy to accuse and throw stones. The only thing that the Pharisees got right here was the fact that they brought this lady before Jesus. Don't you understand that whenever we are falling into sin, the best place we need to be is at the feet of Jesus. We bring sinners to Jesus. But then don't miss out that Jesus calls this woman to a standard of holiness. Go and sin no more. We want to pattern this this. Our approach after this amazing gentleness and compassion of Christ this morning. There is no condemnation at the feet of Jesus. 
Yet Jesus does the man change from us. God always has a word for the wayward and the wounded. When we think about this study, this is where we are right now. In regards to sexual morality, there is no condemnation at the feet of Jesus. Yet Jesus demands a change from us. To briefly recap of what we talked about last week, we answered the question, what does God want from my sex life? And this is part of our end of the summer study. This is the will of God. And last week, I told you what God's will was for your life. You ain't know I was a prophet like that. I just speak over you. I just tell you what God's will is for your life. See, but I can do that because it didn't come. It just didn't just pop in my head because I'm looking at the scripture. And the scripture said, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. See, I, I, I know what God's will is for your life. Your sanctification. God wants your sexual purity. Being created in, in the image of God means that we are to display his glory. But that glory is is, is, is most brightly seen when we live in obedience according to God's word. The scriptures are clear. God wants his children to pursue separation in a sex-saturated society. See, it's because sexual morality prevents spiritual growth. You, you must be set apart from sexual sin by seeking satisfaction and the pleasure of God and not the pleasures of this world. Last week, I also answered the, answer the question, why do we even need to talk about this in church? We need to talk about this because sexual immorality is pervasive. It's everywhere. Sexual sin is in our face. No matter where you look, where you turn, sexual sin is staring right back at you saying, come near. Come to me. It's not only pervasive, but it's personal. Sexual sin affects all of us in some way. It affects our lives specifically or somebody in our family. Sexual sin has touched all of us, no matter who you are. But then lastly, we're talking about this because sexual immorality is a problem. And we see the the brokenness and the hurt and the pain because we are abusing God's gift and we're doing whatever we, we want to do. Like using a hammer. As a flask water, you're bound to break something because you're using it wrong. God has given us the gift of sex, but we must use it right. And the only way, only way we can understand and determine how to use God's gift is if we have a biblical sexual ethic. We talked about ethics last week. It's the principles by which we live by. And God has laid out for us a sexual ethic. And his sexual sexual ethic says that he is the designer, the creator of sex. Because in the beginning, God created everything. And after he created the heavens, the stars, the animals, the birds, the fish, man and woman, he stepped back and said, it is good. Genesis, the second chapter, verses 24 and 25, God lays out the context that this gift of sex is to be participated in. Sexual intimacy is to take place within the confines of marriage, the covenant union of one man and one woman before God and for life. God always puts parameters around his worship. God doesn't say, here, you just have at it and do what you want. God says, no, this is how I want you to approach me. And he did the same thing for sexual intimacy. He says, if this sex, this gift I'm giving you is an act of worship, but I'm going to put parameters around it so you don't kill yourself. 
That's the example of a fire. A fire is a good thing in the right place. If I, uh, if I have a fireplace and I'm cold, I may put some, some wood into the fireplace and light it up and admire the beauty of the fire. Sit in the warmth of the fire and experience its goodness. But let that fire jump out the fireplace. It will wreak havoc on your house. It will burn everything down. Sexual intimacy outside the confines of marriage will burn your house down. So God puts parameters. Not because he's a heavenly, uh, boring person, but because he has your best interests in mind. So sex has a design, and just as everything else that God has created has a purpose, sex has a purpose in that it is created for God's glory. Sex is part of God's good creation, and he says specifically, it is good. We, we looked at a number of verses last week, but I'm just going to read you one out of Proverbs that talks about the goodness of the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. In Proverbs, the fifth chapter, verses 18 and 19, the writer is speaking to his son, and he says, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. We have a whole book, Songs of Songs of Songs of Solomon, that, that talks about sexual intimacy and how glorious a gift it is that God has given in the proper context. So sex has a design, sex has a purpose, it's, it's consummate, it's ultimate purpose is God's glory, but yes, there were subordinate, there, there were lower purposes, and we see how, how it practically works out in the fact that sex was given as a gift to Adam and Eve for their wedding night. It consummates marriage. That one flesh union, and a man shall leave a father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. That's that consummation, that union of two separate people now become one before God. But also it is for procreation because God is telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, the, uh, they were going to multiply not like a Xerox copier where copies would just fall off. But it's through the procreation, through giving birth. Sex was given as an expression of love between a husband and wife. And it would be an ongoing act, a the gift of sex and marriage is a reminder, a renewal of the covenant union. And it continues to draw the husband and wife together and to keep them there. But then lastly, this gift of sexual intimacy God has given us was for pleasure. For us to enjoy, again, within the proper context. But what happens? Sin enters into creation in Genesis 3. This fall distorts everything that is good and perverts God's gift of sexual intimacy. And now the Bible has a term for that distortion and it's called sexual immorality. And right off the top, we see from the text that sexual immorality is sin. To be immoral is means you're lacking morals. So if God created sex to be uh, a gift for one man and one woman in covenant union before God for life, anything outside of that. Is sin. The word that Paul uses here is por porneia, and it covers sins such as adultery. When a husband and 
steps out on his wife or a wife steps out on their husband and have a sexual relationship with someone they are not married to. It covers fornication. That is sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage. Porneia covers homosexuality. But also not only the, the, the particular sex act of a person, but it covers pornography. Things that we are viewing and seeing. That is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality covers the TV shows that we watch, magazines that we pick up, the books that we read. Sex is so pervasive. It's everywhere. We have to be intentional and mindful to guard our hearts and guard our minds. The latest threat posed to us is now that social media is so rampant. Our children are not texting. They're sexting one another. And beloved, let me, let me just explain to you how serious that is. If your child is caught sexting, that, that is considered child pornography. And your child, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, can, can be convicted of a crime and be labeled a sexual offender for the rest of their life. Because we're not guarding their hearts. We're not checking their phones. We're letting them do whatever they want to do. In this country, we, we, we know about institutionalized racism, how in, in systems that are built, it has an, an outlook on a certain people group and discriminates towards that people group. But don't you uh, realize that we are in a nation of institutionalized idolatry and built within our culture is this esteeming of sex where we, we use sex to sell, we use sex to motivate people, we use sex to get clicks and hits. It's institutionalized, it's built in. Why? Because Satan is the God of this world. Looking to distract us and destroy us any way that he can. Think about, we were in community group on Tuesday, just throwing things out there. And we start talking about TV shows. And I'm sorry if this is your TV show. We start talking about Scandal. And we start talking about Olivia Pope. And all of a sudden, you find yourself rooting for adultery. You're rooting for it. You want it to happen. Sexual immorality is so subtle that the Satan gets in us and motivates us. Uh, uh, she ain't deserve him anyway. And we come up with excuses to, to make it okay. And Satan is saying all the while, I got him. I got him. What does God want from your sex life? God wants sexual purity. God wants you to bring glory to him through your sexual obedience. But this morning, as that is a recap, this morning we continue through this passage. We look at two questions, and I'm going to try to hit it fast and go through. But the first, these two questions today is, why does God want purity for your sex life? And secondly, how do you pursue purity in your sex life? First question, why does God want purity for your sex life? Why? What's the big deal, God? What's the big deal? The big deal is sexual immorality seeks to unseat God as the ultimate recipient of pleasure. That's verse 1. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how, to, how you ought to walk, how, that how you ought to walk, that's an ethic. He's given them a biblical ethic. And he says, how you ought to walk, why? And to please God. 
our purpose in life is to be pleasing unto God. And what happens when we live for our own pleasure, when we participate in sexual sin, I'm not living to please God anymore. I'm living to please myself. So now I become God and everything should be on the table sacrifice for me. I'm trying to unseat God as the authority. And whenever we try to unseat God as God, we are doomed to fail because God ain't given up his throne. God is not just going to walk away and say, oh, oh, that's your life. You like it, I love it. God is not, God is not giving in. He's pursuing because he wants to be in relationship with you. And how do we know he wants to be in relationship with us? Because he says right here in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a big word for making you look more like Jesus every day. And he wants us to look like Jesus because that is the one, he is the one whom he's lavishing his love upon. When we begin to look more and more like Jesus, experience that relationship between the son and the father just as they experience it together that's what Romans 8 29 tells us for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son God is taking those that he has called him to himself and he's making them look more like Jesus each and every day so when it comes to our to, to the Christian life, there's, there's a moment where justification takes place where I am now uh, uh, just before God because of the blood of Jesus. And then there will be a day of glorification where uh, all things will be new. That I'm in a land of no more. Sin will have no reign, no rule on my life. I can stop taking that medication. I can stop getting up early for job. But I, I'm, I'm going towards glorification. But in the middle of justification and glorification is sanctification right now. Your life right now. Aspects of your life right now is that God wants to make you holy. He wants to make you to look more like Jesus. And by God's grace, it's through, it's through the righteousness of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that, that the sanctification takes place. Let me make it plain. Because we can see sanctification as this burden. Lord, you get on my nerves. You get all these rules. You know what sanctification is? Sanctification is the process by which God disrobes those filthy rags that we carry around every day. Sanctification is the process of God taking his lovely hand and wiping the filth off our face. Sanctification is the process where God says, come here, my child, and sit down and let me wash your feet. Sanctification is the process where God is not afraid to hold your hand because you got a cold. He says, I'm, I'm drawing you near to me in order to disrobe this filthiness, this iniquity, this sin. And I'm going to put on the righteousness of Jesus in his place and make you look new. Is that a burden? That is a glorious truth that God himself would choose to endow sinners with the righteousness of Christ. He said you can take off that robe. You don't have to keep wearing that guilt. You don't have to keep wearing that shame. 
You don't have to keep wearing that defeat and depression because I make all things new through sanctification. So he prepares us to be used by him and then he transforms us and then he chooses to use us. That's incredible. But here's the problem. Sexual immorality prevents sanctification. It stops that process. Look at the text, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to wear robes of righteousness. I I, I want to get rid of that stained garment and and make make your robes as white as snow. I want to do something different in you. But he says, in order for that to take place, you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual sin stops the sanctification process. Like a child growing up who has stunted growth. We, I think back to like different strokes. Y'all remember Gary Coleman? What you talking about, Willis? You know, y'all, I mean, y'all might have to go on the internet and look that up. But it was a show where two brothers had been adopted, but, but Gary Coleman, he suffered from a kidney disease and he couldn't grow into the full stature Because of this disease. Beloved, when you live in sexual immorality and sexual sin, but you're trying to grow as a Christian, your growth is stunted. It's stopped. It's not, it it is not going to, think about it. Think about your life. Think about the times where you felt closest to God. The times that you was growing, the times that you were excited, was sexual immorality is anywhere around. Absolutely not. I I guarantee that because the text says you will not grow in sanctification until we stop. It's stunting our growth. And we think it's just because, and we think it's just the sex act. You want to know why your heart is cold towards God? You want to know why the scripture is boring? You want to know why you don't want to pray? You don't want to spend time with the Lord? Could it be? Could it possibly be because you've given your attention to another? Could it be because you are uh, engaged in sexual immorality and don't even know it? You, you like, it, they sent me the magazine in the mail. I know it was a swimsuit issue. I was just looking through it. This is our show. We watch this every week. You expect me to give up my show? God says yes. Why? Because he wants you to look like Jesus. But if that's the primary reason, there are secondary reasons that I'm going to, I'm just going to fly through. I'm not even going to dig into. But based upon the text, not only does sexual sin stop our sanctification, but sexual immorality is depraved. Depraved means it's ungodly. It's not of God. In verse 5, he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What is he saying? Paul is saying that when you are engaged in sexual sin, you act like somebody who don't know God. You're ungodly. The Gentiles were ungodly. They didn't have a respect for God. He says you're ungodly. Verse 4, sexual morality is not only depraved, but sexual morality is damaging. Verse 4, he says that each of 
each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And holiness and he's talking about self-control. Don't, don't you know when you out of control, everybody in danger. When you out of control, folks are liable to get hurt. When, when, when you see a bunch of kids running around, jumping up and down, jumping on the chairs, what do you say? Hey, now sit down somewhere, y'all out of control. Why do you tell them they're out of control? And what you say? Because somebody going to get hurt. Ha! Can you hear that? When you out of control, somebody going to get hurt. When you living how you want to live, talking how you want to talk, going where you want to go, watching what you want to watch, somebody's going to get hurt because you're out of control. When you fall into sexual sin, you're out of control. And, and, and then from, our, from us being out of control, now we see sexual abuse. Predators. Those who we thought loved us, harming us. But not only sexual abuse, we fall into sexual misuse. Because we begin to use our bodies not out of worship of God, but out of worship of, of ourselves. Beloved, sexual sin never works out. Does it? Think about the Bible. Did sexual sin work out for Abraham? Sarai, his wife at the time, said, I can't have a child, but you can have my servant, Hagar. He sleeps with Hagar and has a child. And now the Israelites and the, the, uh, the Palestinians, uh, the Muslims are, 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 are fighting. Like today. The sexual sin work out for Samson. Samson like, oh, she tight, doc. Let me tell you, I met her down at the block. Everybody's trying to get at her, but I hollered at her. She wanted me. Samson thought he was all that. Did, did sexual sin work out for Samson? No, because they cut his hair and he ended up losing his life. Did sexual sin work out for David? They, I'm the man. I, I can have whoever I want to have. I'm popping bottles and making it rain. Don't you know I'm king? Did that work out for him? A child dies and a man loses his life. Did sexual sin work out for Amnon? He sees the sister and, and this, instead of going about the right way, he sexually assaults her and then gets rid of her. And now Absalom, her, her other brother, he got a problem with Amnon and he murders his brother and now he's on the run. Se look, sexual sin never works for anybody. Think about our lives and the, the generations that have been impacted, impacted by people just doing what they want to do. Sexual morality is damaging to ourselves. But not only that, in verse 6, we see sexual morality is, da is damaging to others. What does he say? He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What does he mean? When we engage in, in sexual sin, you know, there's usually, usually somebody with us. And, and we don't look at that person in a way that we want to be giving and free. But we want to take what they have for my pleasure. So ultimately, we become thieves and we steal from one another. We, we steal from those young ladies' images 
online in order to satisfy ourselves. We we steal from from those men and women who are engaged in sexual morality for our pleasure. We're stealing and taking something that is not ours. And and and, and Paul is saying, don't do it. You are transgressing and wronging your brother and sister. We're thieves. We flee from sexual sin because sexual immorality is what, is, is, is what you call unitive. It takes two people and makes them one. So when we engage in sexual sin, we're taking two people and making them one. Don't laugh at my drawings. So in sexual sin, you, you got one person. That, ain't that good? That's good. You, you got one person. And then you got the other person. So what, what God did, though, God said, I'm going to take two people and make them one flesh, right? So God takes the man and the woman, and he puts them together. So instead of two people, how many people you see now? You see one. And then the act of sexual intimacy is like the glue and the staple that keeps them together, right? So, so every time a husband and wife is having sexual intimacy using this gift, it's, it's making them more fond and more loving of one another. But if you ain't married, see, the danger is that you are having sex out of marriage. You're doing what you want to do. You're stapling yourself to everybody else. I just want to have fun. And I just want to do my thing. But after you don't staple yourself to somebody else, you know what happens? Y'all break up. And know what you do? I'm going to fix it. I'm going to start... Hollering at her, you know, she 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 DM'd me on my Facebook page. I ain't seen her since high school. She grew out she grew out of that ugliness. She look good now. So, and then you start hollering at them, and then you get in that relationship, and then they do something you don't like, and then what happens? You break up again, and then you say, you know what? I got an idea. I'm gonna get another boyfriend. I'm gonna get another girlfriend, and then you start sleeping with that person, and you start sleeping with the next person, and the next person, and the next person. And then because sexual intimacy was meant to bring two people and make them one because you've been doing it. See, if I had just stayed married in one person, I wouldn't, there wouldn't be no damage. But because I've been doing what I want to do, I'm damaged. That's sexual sin. It damages us. It leaves us full of holes, full of brokenness. And we're trying to figure out well, what's wrong. Beloved, God created sex as a glorious gift to enjoy and experience in marriage that would take the husband and wife and get rid of all the stumbling blocks and the hurdles. And, 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 and Paul said it, the mystery takes place where how do you take two sinners and make them one only through the blood of Christ? Not only is sexual immorality damaging, is damning. Walk with me on the survey. Walk with me on the survey. We got some scriptures that's going to be on the screen. First Corinthians 6 and 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 
19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And he goes on and he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5 and 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 11. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Revelations 21 and 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, he goes on, he says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. When we live for ourselves, when we want our own glory, when we want our own satisfaction, and we, and we thumb our nose at God and we say, God, I know what I'm doing better than you. He says that we will have no part of him. And if we are living in habitual sexual sin, we have no part of Christ. We were not made for sexual morality but sexual purity. This is why this is why we pursue purity in our sex life. But So how? How do we do it? And it's one of those things that is simple, but it's not. Because all throughout this text, he's pointing us to the answer. He points us to God the Father. He says, you need to know him. You need to be in a relationship with him. But then he points to God the Son. He says, we demonstrate our love for God by entering into a relationship with Jesus. And we, we demonstrate our love by obeying his commandments. But in verse 8, here's the key. This is the sanctification part because he, he, he's been talking about God. And he's been talking about Jesus. And uh, where's the Holy Spirit? In verse 8, he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God. Why? Who? Gives his Holy Spirit to you. How do you, def- how do you pursue purity? Through the power of this triune God we serve. We understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Is that he is our helper. Jesus has said I will give you the helper. And he will do some things. He will, he will convict us of sin. He will guide us in truth. And he will point us to Jesus. See, when, when the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus, we see the one who lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve. And by submitting and surrendering to him, his, his righteousness now becomes mine, defeating death. 
When we belong to Jesus, we have help. Beloved, understand this. This is hard stuff. And we can have a lot of guilt and brokenness by how we used to live. But guess what? God doesn't want to remove your past. God wants to redeem your past. What we want to do is we want to move past it and we want to forget about it and act like it never happened. But God says, no, it happened for a reason. And I'm going to use that to demonstrate my glory through your life in remarkable ways. That if you just submit to me, I will use your brokenness. I will use your lowliness. I will use your discomfort and despair, not only for your good, but for my glory. How do I know this? Because this, this, this is what happens to Paul, right? First Timothy, the first chapter, beginning with verse 12. Listen, listen to what Paul says about how God doesn't want to remove his past, but to redeem his past. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, pointing me to a service. So I, I, I'm grateful that the Lord has called me to himself. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. He, I, I thank God for using me because I, I, I used to act a fool out there. And he said, but... I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And not only did I receive mercy, he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy and desiring of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Paul says I. I'm why he came. My sin was so. Remarkable. My sin was so high. That I cannot save myself. I needed somebody, someone to come down. To rescue me. And he says because it was God's mercy. And God's grace. That I can say thank you now. Because of your mercy. And because of your grace. You can use a fool like me. Paul is saying. That when I was broken, when I didn't even love God, that he can use that brokenness and he can, he can use the unlovable to make somebody else love God. In verse 16, he says, but I received mercy for this reason. Why, God? Why, God, would you fool with sinners like us? You know where I was last night. You know what I used to do. You know how I am right now. Paul says there's a reason in the midst. There's a reason that God wants to do something with, with our sinful broken lives. And he says, for this reason, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What is he saying? He's using my life as a witness. He says, my life has a purpose. Though I was broken, though I was busted and disgusted, God will use my life as a witness for his glory. And somebody can be saved from my brokenness. They don't have to go through what I went through. 
They don't have to go where I used to go. They don't have to talk how I used to talk. But God wants to use me as a demonstration of mercy. Oh, the, the greater your story, the more mercy we see. And we try to hide behind our sin. But God says, stop hiding behind how you used to be. No, I crucified that at the foot of the cross. And I made you something brand new. And I'm going to use this newness to display my glory in your life. I want you. I want your foolishness. I want your wine. I want your sexual morality. Because I will use you. And what happens when you know that God wants to use you in your brokenness? What happens when God wants to use you in spite of yourself? What happens? Paul breaks out in the doxology. He just says, he, he's looked back over his life. And he's beginning to think things over. He, he, he sees his testimony. And he can't say anything else in verse 17. He just says, hi to the king of ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just started shouting praises. Beloved, sometimes we just got to look back over our life to realize how faithful God has been. Sometimes we have to just look back in order to go forward. Because when we look at where God has brought us from, if we ain't there now, he's been doing something in our lives. God wants to use you. Why? Because of his mercy and his grace. Not your mercy and not your grace. But his mercy and his grace. That is from everlasting to everlasting. Paul shows us that what was perverted can't be converted. Beloved, understand that sanctification, this is a, this is a complex process. And we take one step at a time. We want instantaneous gratification. We want to show up to, to Jesus and say, fix it all right now. We don't want to go through the process. See, but in the struggle, you get strength. And when you struggle, people can see your life. So, uh, so what God wants you to do, he doesn't want you to win the war. He just wants you to win the battle. He doesn't want you to finish the fight. He just wants you to start the fight. What God wants you to do is just say no to one more thing tomorrow than you did the day before. What God wants you to do is win one battle. That's what I say. Just win one fight. Don't try to win it all. Next time that show come on, click. That's one battle. And then after you win that one battle, go win one more. Then when you win that battle, go win another one. And then when you win that one, win another one. Because if you win enough battles, if you win enough battles, then you'll win the war. When we think about sexual sin, we can think about being in a room full of darkness. There's two ways to get out. Either you, you remove all the darkness or you bring in light. We trying to remove darkness. Well, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to turn this off and I'm not going to listen. I'm going to throw all my CDs away. I'm going to throw my stats. We're we trying to remove darkness when Jesus says, just bring in the light. 
Because when I, you bring in the light, the darkness will flee. So when I start pursuing Jesus, then the darkness is going to go because he's going to change my taste. He's going to change my walk. He's going to change my talk. He's going to change everything about me because I'm pursuing him. And I ain't got to worry about the darkness because my life, my life is full of light. Practical steps. I'm finishing right here. What we need to be mindful of is what is called the put-offs and put-on. Galatians 5 talks about that. It talks about putting off sin. Put off this. Put off that. But what we normally do is we put off but we don't replace. So we put off and we get lonely. So then we go back. But when you put off and you put on Christ, then you got someone to fill that void. Some of us need to get a dumb phone. And that's... That, Jesus said, if your eyes are causing you to sin, plug it out. If your phone is causing you to sin, cut up that whole arm that got the phone in your hand. Some of us are going to have to make some, some serious choices today. You're at a fork in the road. Will you obey God for sanctification or will you continue to live for yourself? Some of y'all need to cut off your phone service. For your homes. We need firewalls to protect our children and ourselves. There's accountability software like Covenant Eyes that you put it on your machine and it tracks where you go and it sends a report to someone who's close to you. See, we don't like accountability. But the only way you can get out of sexual sin is through accountability and community. We enter into community. We have a soul care ministry here at Forest Baptist Church where we would love to sit down with you and look at the scriptures. What must you do to be delivered? So what do we do with the brokenness that sexual immorality brings? You know, there's still grace found in the forgiveness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All these folks are just manifesting a, a heart that doesn't love Jesus. But what does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you. He's talking to a bunch of used-to-be's. I know how you used to be. I know how you used to talk and how you used to walk. And what does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of our God. He's saying that through Jesus Christ, the redemption that he brings, and when you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness is yours and transformation is for the taking. In Christ there is holiness and hope because Jesus said, I will send the helper. And when the Holy Spirit indwells the lives of those who have been broken by the power of Christ, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to take that first step and win the first battle. But it only comes from a life that is submitted to Christ. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't keep loving ourselves. We have to surrender and submit to Christ Jesus because through repentance and belief, we can uh, uh, be fully restored and have strength to pursue. God wants his children to pursue separation in a sex-saturated society. My challenge to Forest Baptist Church today is to lovingly submit to Jesus Christ 
Pursue the Savior as he pursues your sanctification. Let us pray. Father, you're faithful and you're good and you keep your promises. And Father, if we abstain from sexual morality, we will be sanctified and we will look more like you. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this hour. Father, may you give us strength where we are weak. May you hold us up so we, that, that we do not fall. But most of all, may you point our hearts to Jesus that we will repent from our sin and turn towards you. We will turn and trust the living Savior. In Jesus' name we do pray.